Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Fizzle Show. This is our podcast about uh, building sustainable, meaningful small businesses and earning a living doing something that you really care about. I'm your host, Corbett Barr, and today is a special Fizzle Friday member-focused episode where we have members attending in the audience. And today, we're also joined by a very special guest. We have Seth Williams from retipster.com. Seth has been a Fizzle member. He's grown a successful business in the real estate industry. And to start off with today, we're going to talk with Seth about what he's been up to so we can learn how he grew his business. We're also joined today by Jen Rayow from the Fizzle team. Hey, Jen. Hello, everyone. Welcome. And uh, <laughs> Seth, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I can't believe I'm actually talking to you guys. I've been listening to you for so long. It's weird to be on this podcast with you. So, <laughs> um, so with that, Jen, what's our first question today? All right. Our first question is from a current fizzler named Dustin Backey, and his YouTube channel is youtube.com slash Dustin Backey. Uh, he has a website uh, that he mentioned is still in progress, but it's called Biomechanics 101. So he wants to get our take on a couple of course launching strategies. He's building a digital study course for students taking university level biomechanics. Should I make this course available with a content rollout pre-sale option or wait for a full launch once the course is done? The pre-sale would be an early access option where the student can buy it at a steep discount and get full access to completed portions of the course. They would also get continuing access to it as it expands up to and beyond launch all with their early access purchase. I feel like this could be a great way to earn some income as I build, but also get valuable feedback to facilitate a successful launch. Great. This is, this is an excellent question. Um, and I'd, I'd love to hear what Seth thinks about it. I'll give my two cents to begin with. Um, launching a course is a risky proposition because creating a, a solid course can take a lot of time and effort. And there's a real possibility that you're going to go through all of this time and effort only to find out that uh, for some reason, people aren't interested in your course or something in the way that you're selling it or presenting it is off to some way, to some degree. So um, I'm a big fan of pre-selling, but before you even think about pre-selling, there might be a couple of steps you can take before that to make sure that the thing that you're trying to teach is um, really desirable and, and needed by the people that, that you're reaching out to. So the first thing that you could do is to offer some sort of one-on-one -on -one consulting or coaching around this topic. The reason that you would wanna do that is um, because A, it, it proves that you can sell this thing as a service, and B, it gives you the opportunity to work with someone one-on-one -on -one to learn how your techniques, your approach actually works in the real world and where it's helpful and where it's not and the sorts of questions that people have. So that's always a good place to start, services, and uh, offering those multiple times to sort of hone your approach and strategies so that you can turn those into a course. The next thing that you could do before pre-selling a course is to offer live workshops or group programs to get a handful of people involved in delivering this thing. And again, that's another way to do it in an interactive way. You get to prove whether or not you're able to sell this thing and you get to see whether or not the thing that you're delivering is actually helpful to people, the questions that they have and so on. 
the reason that I'm big on doing this before you actually create a course is A, so that you get practice selling this thing, you understand whether or not people are actually going to buy it, what they react to, and so on. And B, because once you create a course, a lot of that will become set in stone or set in film at least, which means it's really difficult to go back and change lessons and to rework your course. It does happen, but this is the kind of thing that you'll find there are a million other things in your business that you're going to want to get to before you go back and reshoot portions of your course that maybe aren't exactly as, as useful as you thought. So by helping people initially, uh, hopefully you can iron a lot of that out and feel better about your course once you, once you actually create it. As far as pre-selling versus just waiting for a launch, pre-selling is a great way to go because um, you can get some revenue in the door, you can find out that people are committed, you can um, tease people along the way and get them excited for this thing once it comes out, and you can also kind of put yourself in a situation where you have no choice but to get this thing done on time because a big part of creating a course is just getting all the work done, and a lot of times it can be a longer process than you anticipated in the beginning. So um, those are my thoughts. Seth or Jen, do you have other things to add? Yeah, I, I can jump in there. I, <clears throat> so this is actually sort of what I did when I created my membership site. It's at retipster.club. And uh, my objective was really to make a membership site and a course that covered the land investing business from end to end. And I didn't realize it, but I, the years I had spent writing my blog gave me a ton of the content for my course that I needed. It was already out there. Yeah, so I was able to sort of bring that in, repurpose some of it, add some videos to kind of flesh it out a little bit further. Um, but essentially what we did, I think I probably had like 80% of the content there. And then I reached out to 10 people in my audience that I knew were super solid. And I said, hey, you want to like just check this out and be a beta tester? I'll let you in free for life. And what I would expect from you is just like rip this thing apart. Like tell me what you hate about it and what's good about it and that kind of thing. And uh, I got a ton of valuable feedback from that. And when we did launch, probably like a couple of months later, um, you know, again, probably like 80% of the content was there, all like the really important stuff. And the pricing we started at was super low. Um, it was 45 bucks a month for monthly or 35 bucks a month for annual is actually a lot of the stuff, the concepts were very uh, similar to fizzle. It's actually where I got a lot of ideas on how to handle stuff. Um, and it was by far the cheapest course of its kind in that space. And over time, we've raised the prices a lot and we've made a lot of significant changes to the content, N not just adding new stuff, but also like combing through the old stuff and sort of freshening it up and that kind of stuff. We've also added lots of bonuses and a forum. And we also do an office hours uh, thing, just like what we're doing here. And, um, and yeah, and it, people happily pay it. And I think uh, the one thing to keep in mind, it's kind of similar to what uh, Corbett was saying, is that um, people that you let in your course, like every single person that comes through like they're going to have a certain experience with that material and they're going to remember that and they're going to tell other people about what that's like for years to come. So even if like your course ends up being one way at one point, like, and you can make it a hundred times better a year later, a lot of people will still have that experience in the very beginning. So like, make sure it's good enough, you know, like don't, don't make it a total piece of garbage, like really make sure it's something worth paying for and something to be proud of um, because it matters. You know, and 
another thing <laughs> that uh, keep coming back to this, but um, back when you guys, I don't know if you still talk about it, but this squander your launch thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you had said something at one point also don't squander your price increase or something like that. And that was yeah. something that I took to heart and we made a big deal. Every time we were going to raise the price, we gave people like a month notice and it drove a lot of sales. Like it's super powerful. Um, so you, you could almost go into it with the plan of like, it's going to start really cheap, like get in while the price is low because it will be going up and yeah, it can be pretty effective. That's, that's, I love that idea, not to take too much of a detour here, but I love that idea, Seth, because um, like you said, uh, you can see a lot of sales when people know that prices are going to go up. Mm-hmm. The only downside to that is that you can paint yourself into a corner if you're not careful, mm-hmm. if you increase prices too much, and then you end up in a place that you're not comfortable with. So I love that idea of starting prices intentionally really low. This is almost a, another way of pre-selling in a way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's giving people who are willing to take a bet on you early the opportunity to get in for a discount because maybe things aren't going to be perfect right mm-hmm. away. Um, but it also gives you as the business owner a reason to introduce scarcity into your sales process, which is always something that's really hard to pull off authentically. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people I see go through this extraordinary effort to come up with this uh, fake scarcity with you know these timers and things mm-hmm. that, that don't always work in the way that they intended. And as soon as your buyer gets a sense that this is made up, then they're, they're off. Um, but if you have this plan that I'm going to launch this thing at $9 a month, and it's going to go up to $19 a month and $29 a month, and you do that, like every three months or every six months or something, I can imagine you would squeeze in a lot of sales towards the end of each of those periods. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much for the question. Uh, who was that from again? That was uh, Dustin Backey? Yeah. Okay, excellent. Mm-hmm. So keep us updated in the forums, Dustin. We want to hear how it goes and what you think of the great advice from Corbett and Seth. Um, our second question is the Fizzler has asked to remain anonymous, so I'm going to respect that, but it's a okay. pretty good question. So I've been thinking about the kind of life I wanted back when I started my business and the kind of life I got after. Working way too much, neglecting friends, family, hobbies, exercise, and off time to a point where I can't do or think of anything else than this baby. I think I've become addicted to this game, like physically. I feel I've painted myself into a corner and it's cold up there. How do I claim my life back? Oh, yeah. That sounds heavy, man. Right? Heavy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We have all these... Quick show of hands, like uh, of Jen and, and Seth, and I'll, I'll go as well. Um, how many of you have felt like that at times that you have become obsessed? Okay, all three of us are raising our hands. Um, all right, so what did you do, Jen, when you were in that situation, when you felt like you started this business for a reason, but all those reasons got thrown out the window when you basically, other people who are listening live are raising their hands as well. Um, and uh, I think this is like, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, this is something you will go through. So Jen, what, what did you do to, to get your life back in those periods? Um, I take care of myself physically. So I always make sure that I'm meditating, writing in my journal, 
um, and really taking time for myself because when I have obsessive thoughts about my life or my career, it's because I'm just spinning every single day. Um, and for me personally, the only way I can stop that is by taking quiet time and making time for myself absolutely every day. So it's like self-care that isn't bubble baths. It's journaling, meditating, staying in the present moment because it's 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 getting your mind right yeah. because there's this this tyrant that takes over the business owner who who can convince you that nothing else matters mm -hmm. right that that the only thing that matters is the success of this business the health of this business and i have to get that right before i do anything else before i make time for myself before i have fun before i enjoy myself and um, it's a really nasty place to be, right? Mm -hmm. Seth, what, what about you? What's been your experience? Yeah, man. <clears throat> I, I mean, I don't know that I've like mastered this. I definitely think I have a, an obsession with my thing and, and what I do. I, I, I do think I, at this point in time anyway, I mostly have it under control in terms of like, I'm always done by 5 p.m. and I don't really start before nine generally. Uh, I don't spend a whole lot of time on it on the weekends, which just that in and of itself is a miracle. I know that's really hard for a lot of people, but um, yeah, I, I think it's something that I have found helpful. Uh, and this may have been something I heard from you guys at some point is this uh, five whys exercise where, you know, like whatever the problem is, like understanding, like say, if you don't have time, like, why do you not have time? Like, what are you spending all your time doing? And dissecting that, like, why are you spending your time doing that? Like, like, what's the reason you haven't hired somebody or outsourced that or just stopped it? Like, like, what does it really bring into the table? And if the answer is you need to hire help and like, why haven't you done that? Is it because you don't have the revenue for it? How do we get the revenue? You know, it's just kind of just backing into the, the reasons behind the situation. And I think the hardest time I recall anyway, in my journey went was, especially early on when like, I didn't have a whole lot of revenue from the blog to justify hiring help and that kind of stuff. Like it was just me, you know, it's like, if I didn't have the time to do it, it wasn't going to happen. So uh, it's really sort of about understanding the whole 80, 20 principle and like what kind of actions are really going to make the biggest impact in the end. Cause like, I guarantee you're wasting time somewhere. So like understand like what isn't working so you can stop that. Um, and especially when you're really early in the process, that's kind of hard to know because you don't have enough data to work with yet. But um, really, I think everybody is, you know, one of their first goals is to just figure out like what is working, like what is getting traction? What is actually going to be something where if I dump more of my time into this, it's going to improve my business exponentially. So I don't have to spend time doing the other stuff. That's a waste of time. Yeah, I think when you're in, in a period of, of spinning, feeling like you're trying a million different things and nothing's really paying off, it can be easy to get into that sort of toxic place. Um, but I also know that even when your business is successful, you can also find yourself in a place where you feel trapped yeah. and um, you end up in an unhealthy relationship with yourself and with your work and with everyone around you because you're so absorbed and obsessed. I have the really negative tendency to um, let my work bleed into all areas of my life and all hours and all days of my life. And 
um, even just recently, this is this literally last night, uh, I found myself using this new app or, or getting excited about this new app called Streaks, which is sort of a to-do list, but it is meant for you to check off every day so that you create habits. And uh, we all know that habits aren't just the things that you do, but sometimes they're the things that you don't do. And so for me, I've been in such a uh, nasty place lately of working all hours of the day and just feeling like um, I can spin myself into this negative place where I'm not actually making progress. I feel like I'm working on my business because I'm obsessed about it, but I'm actually not doing anything. I'm just like having this really shitty conversation with myself while I'm sitting in front of my laptop on the couch next to my wife when I should be like enjoying her company and watching a movie or relaxing. Um, and so in the streaks app, uh, I just put to not work after 6 PM during the week and to not work on the weekends. And for me, sometimes that is the biggest deal. I can just convince myself that, oh, if I just spend Saturday morning and Sunday evening, and if I just get like three evenings in after 6 PM during the week, I'm finally going to get caught up and feel better about where I'm at. Um, but a lot of times that just isn't that productive of time. And so I love this idea of leverage and recognizing that there are probably 20% of the things that you do during the week that are actually paying off, that are actually returning like 80% of the results. And there's a whole lot of stuff that maybe you are doing that ends up being fluffy and, and uh, not worth your time. And as you grow and as your business grows, it's not just you, it's the entire organization. What are other people doing that may be worth spending time on and, and not. Yeah. Thanks. So taking, taking stock, I think is, is a big part of it, looking yourself in the eye and then also recognizing, I love this thing that Chase said once during a talk. Um, and that was, if you can't feel it now, you're not going to feel it then. Meaning if you can't feel the fulfillment and happiness and success that you want to feel going through the day-to-day -day and the week-to-week -week of running your business, of doing your thing, then you're not going to feel it at some magic point in the future. So you have to respect the relationship that you have with yourself and your mm -hmm. business and um, realize that you're going to feel exactly the same way three years from now or 10 years from now, even if you have revenue coming in the door, mm -hmm. simply because this is about your bad habits. It's not about the, the position that you're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's always another milestone or mountain. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I, I used to have this this point in time before I had a virtual assistant where I would just get clobbered with emails all day long. Just I couldn't escape it. It was just like this ongoing hell that was always there. And funny thing was, I remember there was one uh, weekend when I came back and there were like no emails for some reason. And I felt like depressed, almost like nobody needs me. <laughs> it was kind of this light bulb moment of like, I actually kind of love this hell I've created for myself. So <laughs> it's a, it was kind of a, I don't know, this point of realization, like I almost need to find, like, it's great that you love your work, but like find something else out there, you know, or find something mm -hmm. else that's worth like a bigger yes, that's worth spending your time on. Love it. Yeah. Um, so we have a live question from Vicky, who's in the audience right now, and it's for Seth. So um, Vicki is just starting out with affiliate marketing with her website, Vegetarian Zen. Um, they've been around for six years, but are only now starting to explore ways to monetize the site. What was the biggest learning you made early on as you started with affiliate marketing? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of different lessons. I know 
um, kind of depends on like the product and um, I guess the goals in terms of how much money you're looking to make. But um, I knew even to this day, there's a lot of people that reach out to me about like, hey, let's do this affiliate thing. And I've kind of learned of certain musts that have to be in place. I kind of talked about them earlier in terms of like, it's got to be the right product. Um, it's got to be, you know, pay out fairly well and it needs to be fairly easy to trigger that commission. But also uh, there needs to be a good way to like track it on my end to know how many people are clicking on it and how much revenue is generating. There's a lot of people who have done this kind of thing. We're like, Hey, just use this discount code and we'll, we'll take care of it for you. And then I, nothing ever comes through. I never get paid anything. I don't even know what's going on. They just kind of ghost me if I ask them what the status is. And um, so anyway, I just have like this list of, it's got to check all these boxes or it's not going to work. And I guess the the nice part about that is it, it helps me to not waste a whole lot of time putting together reviews and talking about stuff that's never really going to be fruitful in the end. Um, and it's also, uh, um, it's easy to sort of get, especially if you like really would need to depend on affiliate income, it's easy to get in this mindset of like, well, we only talk about stuff that's affiliate related and nothing else. But I think there's a lot of value in talking about stuff that will make you no money just because it's helpful, you know, and people need to know that like you have their best interests at heart. Like if you go to my resources page, I think more than half the stuff on there is just free stuff out there that I'm letting people know about. Um, and it kind of, uh, you almost have to stop thinking of it through the lens of what's going to make me money. And instead just think of like, what's going to help people. And in time, there will totally come opportunities that make all the sense in the world to promote and monetize, but that doesn't have to be, you know, everything you do. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And I'll, I'll echo that, um, that idea that there are certain boxes that, that an affiliate program needs to check. Sometimes you can objectively just kind of look at the program. You can, for example, recognize what system they're using to track the links Mm -hmm. and, uh, either get a good or bad feeling about that based on your experience. Sometimes you may need to just test the waters a little bit and promote something in a small way and see if people click on it see if anybody signs up, see if you actually get paid, all that kind of stuff, sort of follow the thread all the way through before you commit to making a bigger deal about something. It, we, we only have limited amounts of attention from our audience at any one time. And so you have to pick your battles in terms of where you're directing that attention. And if you're going to do a full-on webinar or something for an affiliate promotion. You just want to make sure that it's going to be something that pays off. And in my experience, Seth, you mentioned before that, uh, you know, you may have relationships with 30 different affiliates, but probably six of them actually account for the lion's share of revenue. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, that ends up being around 20% or so. I'd say the exact same thing is true for me. Um, In fact, uh, I've, you know, had probably, you know, 50 or 100 different affiliate things that I've promoted over the years, and maybe 10 have like really paid off. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, if I went back and looked at it, there's probably three that have accounted for 90% of the revenue that I've brought in. So uh, that's interesting, right? If you're going to be doing affiliate promotions, it's really worth trying to figure out what those three things are. And just recognizing that if you start out trying affiliate marketing, and it doesn't seem to pay off, just realize that there can be massive differences in the things that you're promoting, the way the payout structure works and so on. And so if it doesn't work for you at first, it may just be that the thing you were promoting isn't working out, but that affiliate marketing very well could if you found the right thing. Mm -hmm. 
just throw a laugh in for everyone too. So Vicky runs vegetarianzen.com and she got pitched on being an affiliate marketer for bone broth last week. So <laughs> everybody watch your canned emails out there, know who you're sending them to. Sounds like an animal product to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we checked in the forums. It wasn't vegan bone broth. That's, no. that's still not a thing beyond. <laughs> All right, Jen, do we have time for one more? Um. Yeah, I think so. So this is directly from the forums. It's from uh, Kat, who runs Nara Studios. Um, she has started a business introducing Filipino hand wovens and goods to the U.S. market. So she planned to launch in, launch in October, but had a chance to sell at a conference, and she's almost sold out. <laughs> oh, so great. Right. So she has some really exciting questions, but she has no idea what her next steps are. How does she best create systems to organize and plan her inventory? Um, how does she create systems for custom orders? Um, how much does she reinvest in the business at this point? And how much does she pay herself? Mm. So lots of bookkeeping questions. I think she's um, happily surprised at the amount of sales she's quickly put together and is just, okay, what's next? How does she keep the momentum, but not, but stay as organized as possible? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, let's start from the end and go backwards. So the first questions or the last two questions were kind of related. One was how much should she reinvest in the business and how much should she pay herself right now? From my standpoint, I'll tell you what I would do. And that is um, I would pay myself a little bit because you want to feel some sort of reward for all this hard work that you've doing that you've been doing. Whether or not this is your main source of income, I don't know. But if it's not, maybe you pay yourself in a reward. You allow yourself to take a weekend away, you buy yourself a new gadget, you do something nice. Maybe you involve your spouse or your significant other in that way as well so that they see that all this hard work that you've been um, putting in is actually paying off because that's the worst tension in the world when you feel like you're spending countless hours on your business and your significant other or spouse is seeing that as well and they're wondering like, is this ever going to pay off? So I'd pay myself a little bit, but at the same time, uh, you have to ask yourself, well, if I reinvest this money in the business, is there something that I can spend this cash on that is going to make me more money down the road? This goes all the way back to what Seth was talking about in um, what was the last episode, if you're listening to the podcast, the last Friday episode, uh, about assets versus liabilities. And if your business over time can become an asset for you such that if you put money into it, that money is going to return more than what you put into it, that's a beautiful thing because then all the profits that you make, you can reinvest knowing that a year from now, two years from now, that's going to pay off even more and this thing's going to grow over time. And that's how you make more money over time because a lot of us who start online businesses end up basically just trading our time for money in one way or another because this thing isn't actually growing. Yeah, we have more freedom. Yes, maybe we're making more than we would have in a regular job. But if you're just making the same amount year in, year out, then at the end of the day, there is some calculation you can do about trading time for money. So reinvesting money in your business is a skill that all of us need to, to pay attention to, to get better at, and to figure out exactly what we can spend money on that's going to return something to us at the end of the day. Yeah, there, 
Jen. There's one last line in her question that I <laughs> that I just found. But what she said is that since some of the business is in other currencies, she's finding doing the books really confusing. So I wonder, you know, so, that um, so that's an area where uh, this is a great example. If you find yourself spending four hours a week or something doing the books, and you know that doing the books isn't your secret sauce, doing your books isn't why people are buying your product. It's not why you're finding customers. So there are other people out there who specialize in this, who have been doing this for a decade and who might be really good at it. So that's an area where you might be able to hire someone for a couple hundred dollars a month, maybe $300 a month, something like that. A lot of times you can find a good bookkeeping service. Um, and so that could be a really good use of that investment because then you free up uh, 16 hours of your time every month that you can spend doing something else. Yeah, Vicky in the chat box just said that uh, Vegetarian Zen hired Bench uh, through the Fizzle link and it was totally worth it. It saved the, uh, her and her wife a ton of time. And Bench is uh, a, an online bookkeeping service basically at bench.co. And um, I think they have plans starting maybe around 150 or $200 a month, something like that. Um, Seth, did you have, uh, Jen, the other two questions at the beginning, uh, you talked about managing inventory mm -hmm. and what was the second part? Organizing and creating a system for custom orders. Yeah. And um, I don't know if we can, neither of us sell physical products, right, Seth? Yeah. And, and yeah I, Jen I wish either. I could help on that. But, but maybe you can talk bit because whether um, whether you are creating content or selling physical products, systems really matter, right? Because uh, you can either wing it and every time you do something, it's like a new process and it takes forever to do it, or you can get better at doing the same thing over and over again so that you can improve it. Custom orders are one of those things. If you're writing a custom order for someone, it can take forever. Um, and it can go wrong in a lot of ways that lead you to make no profit on the sale at the end of the, at the end of the deal. So maybe you can talk about how systems have helped you, Seth. Yeah, well, I know, um, I mean, we use Gumroad for all of our one-off things that we sell on, uh, on, um, you know, our blog. And part of the reason we use that is because like, I don't have to do anything. Um, we used to be using eJunkie prior to that. And one of the issues that came up was, um, I'm not sure if it still works this way, but back then it would email a special link to that person. They would think you have like five chances to download it. And like 5% of the time, I don't know if it was spam filters or what, but the emails were not getting to the people. So then they would email me all angry because they bought something and couldn't download it, which I totally understand. Um, but anyway, with, with Gumroad, part of the reason that we switched to that is because they just give you a download link immediately after you buy for it or buy by the the thing so you don't have to rely on some email coming through and things like that where it just kind of cuts out little speed bumps along the way just they just don't even exist are a pretty big deal and i know their you know their affiliate platform is is pretty easy too just in terms of like the money automatically goes to that person i don't have to like manually spend time you know calculating stuff and sending them payments and so i think I mean, I don't know how much that applies to custom orders and that kind of thing, but if there's anything that can be automated or better systems that just don't require extra movement on your end, I think that's super helpful. And also, I mean, I don't know anything really about how this particular business works, but 
I would be curious to know like what percentage of the orders are custom orders and like how much of that accounts for all of their revenue. Like it could be one of those things where one in 10 orders is a custom order and it's just a ton of busy work to get it done. Like what mm-hmm. if you just don't let people do that anymore? Just give mm-hmm. them, yep. give them the options that are the most common and just stick to that. And I mean, you may be walking away from some revenue, but like that could make life way easier for you. Yeah. That, and that, that's a, a great lesson in general, which is just because customers are asking for something doesn't mean that you have to say yes. Yeah. doesn't mean that it's in your interest to say yes. My wife over time, she's a, a painter, a fine artist, and she's just found that uh, commissions where someone is asking for something specific, where they're asking for uh, you know, something uh, like they want to give her a photo of something to use as inspiration or to paint from, those just don't work out for her because the the expectations become this burden for mm-hmm. her. She feels really worried about the outcome of the of the the product. She ends up making something that isn't in her wheelhouse, isn't like her core aesthetic, um, and it just takes all this time and effort and isn't necessarily worth it, even if she charges more for it. So for her, if she's going to do a, a commissioned piece, then she basically says, uh, you can show me a couple of examples of other paintings that I've done that you like, and I'll try to make something that's in the same vein. You can maybe tell me a couple of colors that you like, but that's it. That's the extent of doing commissions for her. Now, people still ask for those other commissions and it's hard to turn it down because it's, it's revenue, but she just knows it's not worth it at the end of the day. And if she instead spends that energy on other marketing activities or something, it's going to pay off in some other way. So you have to learn how to say no. And sometimes the custom work is just too much. Mm -hmm. Um, Another way to look at it is if it is too much and it's taking too much time, of course you need to pare it down and make it as simple as possible. But you might also just decide that you need to charge enough to make it worth it. And maybe enough to make it worth it is like a lot. And maybe you charge so much that very few people take you up on it. But when they do, it pays for all of those other deals that you lost. And it makes this one deal like really worth doing. That's exactly how my husband charges for, he's a self-employed musician. And if he gets offered a gig that he's not totally crazy on, he'll just ask for three or four times more than he usually gets. And that's the only way they'll get him. It works. And, and once in a while, and once in a while they say yes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So then he ends up doing maybe a fourth of the deals that he would have done. Yeah. But he gets paid exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Perfect. Perfect. That's situation. a great takeaway for me. I when I was starting out, I had this same thing of feeling like, like I had to say yes to everybody because I wanted to be everybody's friend and give people what they want. And it wasn't really until the past few years that I've gotten crystal clear on like this is what we do and do not pursue as a company like we are not wasting our time with this stuff it makes it a lot easier once you have that kind of clarity but i i don't even really give myself room to think that way sometimes about well we could do it we're just going to charge you 10 times more so maybe that's something i should explore yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i have one other takeaway from this question really quick it's um you know it's it's exciting news that she almost sold out it sounds a little bit like she's surprised in a good way but with the amount of questions you know like boom 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 like straight into the fizzle forums like just make sure that you take a breath you're planning to launch in October you have some time now one you have real scarcity so I'm on uh, Kat's email list you know you can build up more excitement with your audience that you know you're having to bring in more um, 
hand wovens. Um, you have time to get methodical, find the right systems that will work for you but before you launch. Like, don't, just don't let it uh, become that runaway train. Like, you have time right now to really set it straight. So she's definitely asking the right questions for that. Just remember, you, you're in control. You have the time. Yes. As always, business is a marathon, not a sprint, <laughs> even though yeah. sometimes it feels like it's a sprint, especially when you're just getting started mm -hmm. and you feel like you need to capitalize on all this energy, but you also need to not burn out. Yep. And uh, for a lot of us, that's the key to longevity is just making sure that we stay engaged and in it for the long haul. Seth Williams, thank you so much for being our guest today. People can find you over at retipster.com. Uh, we appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Kat. It was great. Great talking to you. And uh, Jen Rao, as always, yeah. thanks for helping co-host today. Yes, thanks, guys. This was a lot of fun. To all you listeners out there, thanks to you for being here. If you liked today's episode, would you leave us a review or tell somebody about the show? We depend on listeners like you to help us get the word out, and a review or referral is the best way to show your appreciation for the show. As always, you can find the full show notes over at fizzleshow.co. That's F-I-Z-Z-L-E-S-H-O-W dot C-O. I'm Corbett Barr, and until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show. <laughs>